Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that by your will, by your spirit, by your son, that you have brought us to the one true source of salvation, of rest, of joy, and of peace. That not only are you the provider of it, but that you share it so freely. We are so grateful. And God, may we live lives that serve as an expression of gratitude to you. And may we be constantly reminded and know in our hearts what it is you've done for us. And know in our hearts how great that is. Would you show us those things? It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Well, last year, uh, and by last year, I mean technically earlier this year, we witnessed quite possibly the greatest playoff run of all time coming to a beautiful end when the Chiefs dramatically won the Super Bowl. I think we can all agree that it was the best thing to ever happen in 2020. <laughs> and in the post-game celebration, you remember this moment in the post-game in the trophy ceremony where they, they bypassed all the coaches and, the, and Mahomes and Kelsey and Hill and Tyron Matthew. They bypassed all those guys and they went right to the practice squad and they said, this, these guys, they won, the, they won the Super Bowl for us. These guys are the best. Like they brought in a backup kicker no one knew they even had. And they were like, this is our team MVP. He did more for the team than anyone else. You guys remember that? If you're nodding, you're lying, because that didn't happen. That would be ridiculous if that happened. It would just, like, you, everyone watching would be like, you're really going to pass up Mahomes for a backup kicker that no one knew existed? And indeed, there's not a backup kicker. I was looking this week for the name of a backup kicker for this moment. They only have one. Uh, and they didn't do that. You know, in reality, I mean, there's equipment managers that have done more for the Patriots than the Chiefs practice squad ever did for them. And, and they give no credit to the practice squad and these guys that on a depth chart would be sixth, seventh string because they didn't do anything to help win a game on the field. And the credit goes to the ones who won the game. It goes to the coaches. It goes to the quarterbacks, to the key offensive and defensive weapons. And it is shared by the team. But you, in those moments of trophy ceremonies, of, of celebration parades, you celebrate the ones who are worthy of it. And you don't share that celebration. You know, like at the Chiefs parade, they weren't like, yeah, I mean, we, we couldn't have done this without the Raiders being as bad as they are. You know, the Raiders been good, we couldn't have done this, so we'd like to thank the Raiders for being terrible. They don't do that. They just celebrate the ones who are worthy of it. 
And for us, this, there's a very similar logic to that in why we take the worship of God seriously. We celebrate the one who is worthy of it, who is the creator of all, who is the judge of all, and who is the savior of all. We honor the one who has done the work while making sure that those who don't deserve credit don't get credit. And in Scripture, we have people, we see several examples of this, who take the worship of God, the honoring of God, very seriously, who have, as Elijah and Elisha are described, a zeal for the worship of the Lord. Elijah, who took all the prophets of Baal to task on Mount Carmel. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, we won't bow down to your likeness, King Nebuchadnezzar. Our God will deliver us from the furnace, and even if he doesn't deliver us from the furnace, it's still worth not bowing down to your likeness. We have Daniel, who refused to pray only to a king, even if it meant him going to a, a den of lions. We have the prophets, who I, I think specifically of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who had like the worst commissioning services ever, where God said, I'm going to put my words in your mouth and you're going to say it and just know that no one's going to listen to you. But they had faithful, long ministries of telling people you need to worship God and only God and because you haven't, things will happen. And we have Paul who in Galatians says if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one I preach, whether it be angel or man, let him be accursed. And Paul wasn't concerned that people agree with him theologically, but he was concerned that God get all the credit and that the worship of the Lord would happen. And he was more concerned with the worship of the Lord than his own rights. And it is in the zeal of God's worship that Paul moves to the second half of his letter of Philippians. We've been progressively going through Philippians throughout this year. We left off Philippians 2 earlier in the summer, and here we are picking up in Philippians 3, and we're going to start with just the first three verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is coming to this, this second half and he says, he starts with, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we have to, we have to when, we, when we look at Paul saying rejoice in the Lord, it's helpful as we get to points like this to, to then just look back at the book and say, well, how has Paul described the Lord up to this point? What, what did we learn from Paul's theology about the Lord that's worth rejoicing in? And in Philippians, you view Philippians and the structure of Philippians, it comes to a peak, you're going up a hill, and then you're coming down a hill. And the hill you're going up and coming down, everything is referenced by the peak of this hill, is, is the confession of Christ in Philippians 2, that he who was 
had equality with God, he who was very nature God, counted equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians is building up to that and then coming down from that. So when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's looking back at this peak that they're really not that far from yet. It's like going down the trail and looking back up and saying rejoice in that. And so he's saying rejoice in the exalted Lord of Lords who has purchased your salvation. Rejoice in the one at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Rejoice in that. And it's interesting, he starts this, really he's at the halfway point of Philippians and he says, finally, my brothers, a young boy once asked his dad, dad, what does it mean when the preacher says finally? And the dad looked at his son and said, absolutely nothing. And Paul's my boy here. Like he's, he's saying finally at the halfway point. Like this is, this is a guy who doesn't know how to bring a sermon in for a landing. I, could, I like this guy. He sets a good example. But he doesn't, the, the Greek word isn't literally finally. It's more like a moreover. And, and, you know, he's adding to the point. He's adding to the point. He's not so much wrapping up. He's adding to the point. Now, there's all this. And so in addition to that, moreover, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, to write these things to you, it's, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it's safe for you. And he's, Paul knows he's getting redundant with the Philippians here on rejoicing in the Lord. This is, this is the theme of Philippians, rejoicing, having joy, counting things joyful, rejoicing in the Lord. This is a big deal for Paul. He sees, in the, the language of this year, rejoicing in the Lord is an essential task. And he said, man, this is just easy, this is an easy thing for me to tell you to do. Telling a soul to rejoice in the Lord is like telling a hungry person to eat or giving a glass of ice water to someone who's just mowed the yard in July. It is an instruction that when followed well is both enjoyable and deeply edifying. He's saying your soul needs this so much I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to give you this really easy command. This is like telling Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply. He's saying just rejoice in the Lord. He's saying it's safe for you. This will not harm you. This is like giving the instruction, and this may be a stretch for some of you. This may take the enjoyment out of it, but it's like eat broccoli. Like it's going to be so good for you to just do this. Like you, it's going to, it's going to, you're going to feel so much better. Like if you just quit eating junk and like just like have some salad, it's going to be so good for you. It's a command that when kept keeps the soul out of a lot of trouble. Matthew Henry says this, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures which the tempter baits his hooks. 
Let me read that again. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures which with the tempter baits his hooks. You know, we, we, we know the verses, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We know that. But I want us to see that. That the joy of the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord is not just a, hey, let's, let's go to church and get excited about God for a little bit. But this is something day in and day out that we rejoice in the Lord. And rejoicing in the Lord is not only just a, a, a pleasurable thing, but it is something that will keep you from going to dangerous places in your theology and in your life and in your practice. Rejoicing in the Lord leads you to better things. So how do we do this? Well, we're intentional. Because what was going on is you had Judaizers who said, okay, Jesus is great, but you really need to live like a Jewish person too. So you need to take on our eating. You need to, if you're a dude, you need to get circumcised. Like that's how you get discipleship class dropouts. It's telling adult men, oh, and there's one more thing. Like, they're, they're out of there. And really, what they thought they were doing is helping people become more holy. And Paul's saying, look, these guys are dogs. They're telling you, you need to eat certain things to be clean on the inside, but they're dogs who just dig at whatever garbage is available and eat that. They're telling you you need to do certain things and honor certain days and certain festivals to be holy, but they are evildoers. They tell you they're making your body more presentable to God, but they are mutilators of the flesh. It's the lie of legalism that they were peddling, and it's the lie that Jesus is not enough, that somehow the Son of God who made himself flesh, who was very nature God, counted, him, counted that as nothing, but made himself a servant, took on human flesh, and died on the cross, and will be exalted so that every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow at his name and declare that Jesus Christ is, glor- is, uh, Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father, that somehow he is not enough. That's the lie of legalism. That there's something more we need to add to the death of Christ. Legalism is a denial of God's power and authority in our lives and joins fully in Satan's lie from the garden that there's something God isn't telling you that you need in order to have full salvation and full knowledge. And legalism, for the most part, takes on two forms. The first is a corporate legalism. And corporate legalism is this. It's a group of people saying, you're missing something. You need Jesus plus blank to have full salvation. And it's a group of people pressuring, hey, you need to do this with your Fridays. You need to believe this thing. You need to pray this way. You need to come in this specific manner. You need to add these practices to Jesus in order to be saved. And it is a corporate pressure that we need to act a certain way in order to be loved by God. The second form is personal legalism. And this, is, this comes in a lot of really dark ways that we just beat ourselves up with. This is personal guilt. This is shame. 
This is pressure of, this is, this is like the can-do Midwestern work ethic applied in all the wrong ways. Where we think, I need to be good enough. Sometimes we state it like this, I've done some pretty bad things that don't warrant forgiveness and therefore I'm unlovable and outside the reach of grace so I need to work my butt off to get there. Both of these, whether it's the corporate legalism or the personal legalism, are lies and need to be treated as lies. Both of these are just blown out of the water by Romans 5.8 that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner and that's how God's love is demonstrated. God says, you want to see how much I love you? While you're still a sinner, my son is going to die on the cross for your sins. Not when you're good enough, but when you're still a sinner. And it blows these lies out of the water. They're both blown out of the water by Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so when we have people saying, if you say you're a Christian and you don't blank and it's not confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead, if they're not finishing that phrase by that, that's a form of legalism. And so Paul describes the outcome with the, with the greatest lookout for, those who mutilate the flesh. This is a graphic term and it's used appropriately. He's not overstating this. What they're doing is not helpful, but in the case of, of certain individuals, it creates an unnecessary physical scar, while in the case of all individuals, it creates unnecessary emotional, mental, and spiritual scars. It's the damage of legalism described in a physical way, but the pain of legalism is internal. It creates an insecurity with the Lord that maybe I haven't done enough, and maybe I do need to work off some of this, that maybe I'm not worthy of what God has promised. It produces guilt and shame. These evildoers, dogs and mutilators, detract from the rejoicing of the Lord. They detract from remembering who God is and what he's done. And when we take on the posture of rejoicing in the Lord, we find the answer against legalism because it emphasizes who we are as believers. It emphasizes what God has done. And this gets to the, the point too, and we see it in the next verse. It's know who you are. To rejoice in the exalted Lord of lords who has purchased our salvation, know who you are. And there's really two categories of who you could be this morning. Those who have not yet come to knowing Christ. You're on the fringe. You don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you're just trying to figure some things out in the last ditch effort here. Or those who have confessed their sin, those who have called on Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. They're saved. They're in the family of God. And I'm talking in this section directly to you. Those who are in the family of God, knowing who you are. Know that God has saved you. That know what God has done, that he has made you holy and that he's making you holy. In earlier in Philippians, in 12, right after, right, right after crossing over the peak of the mountain of Philippians, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not 
as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That God has saved you, and he is continuing to refine you and make you holy. And this is a process of continually dying to ourselves. So it's knowing I'm secure in Christ, and I still have sin, so I'm working that out. I'm still finding parts of my heart that need to die, that need to realize they've been crucified with Christ. And just because I'm finding parts of my heart, I'm finding things in my pride or in my ego that I need to get rid of, doesn't make me less saved. In fact, it's confirmation that the Holy Spirit is in me working. It doesn't make you less saved, it proves that you are saved because the Holy Spirit is shining the, the bright, white hot light of God onto your sin and it's making you desperately uncomfortable. And so when those things of sin and shame come up, think, well, maybe God wants me to deal with this and pray for his forgiveness and pray for growth. It's knowing what God has done. In terms of, of Philippians 3 here, it's in the circumcision. And the physical circumcision was this, was this sign that God has made me different, that faith in God and union with God makes me different than everyone else. That, that my life belongs to God. But if you flip, I just want to flip to a couple of passages here. If we go into Romans 8. Starting in verse 8, those who are the flesh cannot please. I'm missing. Oh, man, I've done it. I've done it. Why did I? All right, we're going to go to Colossians because I know that one. <laughs> this is the perk of coming to the first service, right? The second service won't get to have this moment. Colossians 2, starting in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven all your trespasses. That we have received a circumcision from God, but it's not one of the flesh, but it's one of the heart. We are the circumcision. And Paul is saying we are the true circumcision. Those who have had our hearts changed. What was what these guys are going after from the Old Covenant is something of the flesh, a mark of the flesh. And what we need to see is that God has marked our hearts. He's removed what is dead, what is earthly from our hearts, and he's replaced it with what only he can give, and that's life. That God has changed your heart by removing death and giving life, by uniting us with Christ. Know the security of this, that no one 
can undo what only God could do in the first place. If only God could save you, that no person can unsave you. We are not more powerful than God. God did not partially save you. He fully saved you. This last week, we said goodbye to a dear brother from our fellowship, Doug Allen. And Doug, for, for those of you who talked to Doug in his brief battle with leukemia, he probably somehow said the gospel to you. Because what he said over and over again, he said it to his family, he said it to his friends, he said it to his pastors. He goes, look, I know. I don't, I don't want to battle leukemia. I'm a little worried about this. But I know this is God's plan, and I know that he saved me and I'm in his hands. I know there's just nothing that can separate me from him. He was fully saved, and so are you, believer. You are fully saved. And so in rejecting false routes, knowing who you are, we also rejoice in the Lord by responding rightly to what the Lord has done. You are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. We respond rightly by worshiping in the Spirit. This is the way that God desires. You remember the woman at the well? The woman at the well when she was saying to Jesus, well, you Jews believe we all have to go to Jerusalem. I believe we're going to be on this mountain. And Jesus says, look, the day's coming when the true worshipers of God won't have to go anywhere. They will worship in spirit and in truth. Romans 8, verses 8 and 9, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. We come to God on His terms, which is in spirit. We worship in spirit as He desires, as Christ said we would, as, as Paul describes in Romans. And this can't be earned in physically. It's not done physically. In fact, it is impossible to worship in spirit without faith. Worshiping in spirit is believing. It is an act. It is an outflow of believing in faith in God's promises. We are unified with Him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Kent Hughes says this, when God indwells us, He makes us worshipers. His Spirit takes our part before His throne and helps us in our weakness, empowering acceptable worship and prayer. The Spirit does that work. We worship in Spirit. We worship being led by the Spirit. And so many times we think in our day and age that being led by the Spirit is being, is, only means that we're being spontaneous or it only means that we're using the, the, what would be considered the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. What I, I want to tell you today, those, it's, those aren't the only ways of being led by the Spirit. I'm not going to argue their validity, but I am going to say being led by the Spirit is so much more than that. Being led by the Spirit means the Spirit is leading us in repentance as we go to worship. The Spirit is leading us in what we offer in worship, whether that's in finances, whether that's in time, whether that's in, in our bodies as living sacrifices and offering our bodies to the Lord. The Spirit leads us in that and it's in understanding it's in fruit it's in empowerment 
So we worship by spirit and we glory in Christ. Paul says over and over again, if I'm going to boast in anything, he says it a couple ways. If I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in my weakness because it's in my weakness that God is made strong and proven strong. And then he says in Galatians 6, I I won't boast in anything except for in the cross of Christ because it's by the cross of Christ that I'm crucified to the world and the world's crucified to me. I'm only going to boast in the cross of Christ. We glory in Christ. He is our, as we sung earlier, our spring of joy. We have freedom in Him. We have not just a new lease on life, we have a new guarantee on life and life eternal in Christ that the world can never give us. And so all the credit we give goes to Him and goes to Him alone. And to glory in Christ, the idea that I'm going to glory in Christ, this should really challenge our our modern and Western view of worship that it's only music. And this needs to blow our view of worship out of just the realm of music. Yes, we can worship in music, but we worship in so many other ways. That my, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. That my life should be a, a glorification of Christ. I glory in Christ in what I say. I glory in Christ in my thoughts. I glory in Christ in what I bring into my mind. It's one of the reasons we're doing the week of listening. Let's take that week to just fill our minds and our hearts with Christ and not all the other stuff that's going around. Not the political zoo, not the doomsdayism that's that's being spread through our media and social media, but to glory in Christ who is the life, who is the resurrection. Maybe one good practice to do, maybe you could start it this week and continue it on for the next three weeks, is just pour yourself into Romans 6 through 8. And mark all the things that Christ has done for you, all the things of what it means to be in Christ, all the things that are secure for you because of Christ. And I think of the championship parades of teams and you know, whether they win the Stanley Cup or the World Series or the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals, they have these parades. And when I think of championship parades, the one that sticks out to me the most is the Chicago Cubs. Because they, I mean, they just suffered for so long. And they finally won the World Series. And that parade was like no other parade I've ever seen. I, you know, as someone who's not super into baseball, I finally heard the rest of the words to Go Cubs Go. Like it was, it was just sung, so, like the song just got stuck in my head. And it was the Cubs fans, they're waving all their W flags, they're wearing their jerseys, they're, they're celebrating at United like half of Chicago because the rest of them cheer for the other team. And it just, they, they just came together in like song and shouts of joy. And it was, we won. They did it. There is no one greater this year than the Cubs. And they're telling everyone about it. Only our team is the greatest. And they're shouting it and they're hugging strangers and they're rejoicing because they're united by the Chicago Cubs. The goat no longer has the victory. The cubs have the victory. 
Let our glory in Christ be greater. We have salvation. Where, O grave, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has won. Christ is risen. And may that glory in Christ that we share every Easter go to the rest of the days of the year. Let us glory in Christ. Let us boast in the greatness of our Savior. And I'm not just talking about this from an evangelism standpoint, although there's obvious applications there, but may we just recognize the greatness of Christ and rejoice in that and glory in that. May He receive the praise and glory and honor that He's due, and not just in heaven, but here and through our lives. Let us be unified by Him. Move in the direction of proclaiming His greatness. Only Christ can save Him. We glory in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh because this is capable of nothing. But my Jesus, He rose from the dead. My Jesus, He defeated death and sin so I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness. And every nation will proclaim. Every nation will sing his name. And we will get to the new heavens where he will wipe away every tear and it will be the first city that there's no church in because he's our temple. We'll have no need for a building because he is our temple. We'll have no need for a son because he is our light. Let us glory in Christ. And I don't want this just to be like a pep rally moment, but for us to realize, like, man, like part of my life, like I get to rejoice in the Lord. Paul's saying this is an easy thing for me to tell you, and it should be an easy thing for us to do because who else can do what he has done? Nobody. Nobody else can do this. So let us glory in Christ. Why? Because there's no one greater. It just makes sense. We have a great, great, great Savior. Let's pray. Father God, most high, Jesus, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father, your Father, our Father, because of what you've done. Let us not stop rejoicing in you. All of those parades come to an end. God, all of those human parades and celebrations come to an end. And they only feel like the winter for a little bit until the next season starts. But Lord, your parade, your glory is forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.